0: on
1: this episode of The King Wire.
0: That could actually create a really big void if we're not in communities taking care of patients. And so we're, we're like the go-to, we're necessary in these big systems or big hospitals, but when you get very far from them at all, then you've got communities that have absolutely no access to IR.
1: Welcome to The King Wire, the new podcast for SIR's IR quarterly magazine. You can learn more at our website, irq. In 2009, SIR held its inaugural Leadership Development Academy, or LDA for short. Among that first class of graduates was Dr. Laura Findice, who has since held a number of key leadership roles in both SIR and SIR Foundation. In celebration of the 10th anniversary of that first LDA, King Twire hosts Warren Craikoff and Jamin Shaw recently spoke with Dr. Findice about the LDA's impact on her career and about the current trajectory of IR.
2: Hi, Hi. How there. are you doing? Thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Congratulations obviously on being president. We wanted to talk a little bit about that and, and sort of maybe starting off, what led up to you getting to that point? What are what are some of the things in your career that got you to where you are now?
0: Yeah, thanks for having me on. I think it's a great idea to kind of help people understand a path to leadership, and I know that um, we have a lot of members who are just very interested in how to develop themselves as leaders in a lot of different areas of their lives, so I think this is a kind of great to be doing. So I think one thing is I had some really great mentors. You know, in my fellowship, uh, Tori Andrews was my Mm -hmm. section chief for interventional radiology at my fellowship. And he was very involved in the SIR and very involved in the clinical practice movement back then. Um, and so was a founder of the clinical practice committee. And his passion about that really connected with my own background. I had done a couple of years of general surgery and then practiced as uh, an emergency physician for a year in rural Tennessee before I went into radiology. So it was very oriented towards, you know, the idea of, around clinical practice. So we really kind of synergized around that. And then he drew me into that clinical practice committee and those clinical practice groups as I, as I moved along in my career. And so I think my own passion about that issue stimulated me to, to really kind of love the activities I was doing in the SAR. And then my original practice coming out of fellowship was a multidisciplinary practice. I wasn't practicing in a radiology group but I had partners who were cardiologists and vascular surgeons and was doing a ton of really complex PAD work that got me ultimately connected with the new PAD service line. It was right when that was getting developed, the whole service line concept. So I was one of the early members of that just by virtue of that being a really central part of my practice. Um, And I think then that ended up connecting me to leadership. It connected me I was one of the early people in the learn meeting group so that connected me further to leadership and then i joined on to the foundation as the research education chair and then moved into an at-large position on the ec and i think just in terms of engaging in leadership i i think it's just always really important to have something that you're kind of passionate about and pursuing so you know, when I was on the foundation, my pet project was the medical student summer research internship. And then when I was at at large counselor, we started the the early career section. And I think, again, Mm -hmm. like sort of having those things that you kind of believe in, you can see a vision for how to move them forward and kind of rally the troops to make something happen is just a good way to sort of differentiate yourself maybe. So I think each, each of those steps was a really good opportunity for me to be excited about something me to sort of engage in fixing something that I saw as a as a problem or you know pursuing a project
2: that's great.
3: I'm sure there have been many challenges or difficult situations along the way. Could you tell us about you know one or two of the big challenges that you remember and how you addressed them or dealt with them?
0: I think you know most of my my challenges and frustrations have been in my career outside of the SIR, and I think my biggest frustrations have been with the things that disincentivize collaboration in practice. When I started in IR, we were doing, you know, lots of PADS, and the whole sort of PAD wars thing was a really painful thing to go through. Um, I think the things that were incentivizing physicians to act negatively towards each other was a horrible thing to experience myself and to see others experiencing as well. And seeing the failures of organizations to lead around those conflicts has been a, it's just been a a painful thing to watch. I think we're really in many ways on the other side of it. I think um, incentives for physicians have changed. And so that's changing behavior, which I think is a really good thing. So I think one of the biggest challenges for me has been sort of remembering that collaboration is important, even if it's been painful in the past, sort of believing in it as a core value.
2: I think I think a lot of people would echo that sentiment and have gone through, and, you know, I like what you're saying that maybe we're on the other side of that because I think some people perhaps still struggle with that, you know, depending on the individual setup of where you are and, you know, all, all politics being local, of course. But, yeah. um you know, the, the sort of siloism, I guess, in, in healthcare care is, is something that we've all struggled with. Is that something or is there something that you wish you could have told sort of a younger version of yourself when you were first starting out? <laughs> is there some piece of advice or something?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think just in general, I think I would have told myself to be a better listener and to understand better that maybe I'm not always right. I think, you know, a lot of us, we're all good problem solvers and we all, you know, we can fixate on a solution and be pretty sure it's a really good solution, but it may not always be the the solution that's most sensitive to the current context. And I think I could have been a better listener earlier in my career. And I think, too, I probably would have told myself there are some hills that are worth dying on and some that aren't. Mm. uh, And trying to figure out the difference between them, I think part of Mm. that is just, developing some maturity and sort of knowing when to burn all of your political capital. (laughs) Um, And I've, I've definitely uh, been in positions where I've I've burned all of my political capital on something that probably wasn't the thing to burn it on. Um, (laughs) And I think that's something you just have to learn. And we all, um, I mean, we all learn from failure, right? Failure is a gift in a lot of ways, even though it's just really horrible to go through. Um, But you have to take that failure and like, and dissect it and learn something from it, right, to make it valuable.
2: Very well put.
3: So, you know, it's been about 10 years since the inaugural Leadership Development Academy, and you were part of that inaugural class. How do you think that helped you over the past 10 years, and what role did that play in you being who you are and how that shaped your career?
0: So, the Leadership Academy came for me at a really important time in my career, and it was just really kind of by accident that that was the timing, but it was after I had died on a, on a big hill
2: <laughs>
0: and um, <laughs> was really trying to envision my future. So it was a really great opportunity for me to connect with a lot of people who had these really smart people who were really motivated and passionate about IR um At a time when I think I probably would have burned out if I hadn't been exposed to that group of people, and just sort of being reinvigorated around like why I was doing what I was doing in the first place. And then all of those people have become my professional network, and really, you know, in many ways, my you know, my professional family. I, I really view the SIR as being it's kind of like a family, you know, where we all really care about each other. and I think that this particular group of people, my cohort has been a part of sustaining that belief. When we get together, the energy um, is just always so great around why we love IR. And then I got a great opportunity to meet people in leadership to understand a little bit more about the society itself. And I actually found my next job there. (laughs) So, um, you know, there was somebody at the time, you know, Scott Goodwin I met at the leadership Academy And he was a future president of the SIR and actually was the person that ended up giving me my next job and really took a a really big chance on me and was a great mentor to me. And so there's a lot of great sort of personal and professional stuff that all came together at that time.
2: That's great. Now having had experience as an emergency room doc and uh at least a little bit as a as a general surgeon, um you, you may be in a, a better position to answer this question than many, but what do you see about IR that, that really sets us apart or, or or you know is are really sort of the assets of a interventional radiologist in, in your view?
0: Um I think one thing is how much we love what we do.
2: Hmm.
0: I I think that's really unusual. You know, I think a lot of surgeons love being surgeons, but they don't necessarily Hmm. love everything else that they do. Um, Mm -hmm. And they not ultimately love their careers as much as I think most of us love our careers in spite of the challenges and difficulties. I think we all have a ton of passion about like the innovation of what we do. We can see how we can make a difference and we have an opportunity to be creative uh, in a way that other specialties don't i mean a lot of surgery Mm. is very much about doing it the same way every time right like there's a way to do an operation and at at Mm -hmm. some point that became kind of boring for me it's like okay you know been there done that one of the things that's so cool about ir right is that that we get a chance to like figure things out every single day even with like a Mm. complicated cord or you know I mean, there's Mm -hmm. always something that comes up when you're like ah this as soon as you say this is a routine procedure It's like, oh, it's a routine procedure. There's no routine. (laughs) And I think for for those of us that thrive on that, um, you couldn't do anything better. And I think most of us would say there's not a single other specialty in medicine that we would have done. And I don't Mm -hmm. think that's true for other specialties. So I think one of the great things about IR is just the passion that we have for it. I think there's a ton of promise for us to be able to continue to innovate and create better ways to take care of patients, and that's a great asset of our specialty.
3: That's absolutely true. And from my perspective, uh, I love the innovation. and There's always a different challenge every day um, and something different that comes your way, but I think you have a very unique perspective and a different view than maybe some of the younger guys out or some of the people that are just starting their careers. Um, do you know or do you have any ideas of what long term challenges or issues IR might face as a specialty moving forward?
0: Yeah, you know, I think we have to be really careful to not become a a set of procedures that you do this way, right? I worry a little bit when I talk to some of the people just out of fellowship. There's this level of and I guess, I mean, we all had it, right? There's a level of intimidation around, I didn't learn how to do this in my fellowship, so I don't know if I can do this. But they're going to always be those things, right? I mean, I'm not doing the same things that I did when I came out of fellowship. And um, none of us, hopefully, will be 10 years from now doing all of the same things that we're doing now. So one of the things I worry about with the residency is that, you know, could, could we become like surgery? Like, could it become prescribed like, this is what we do in IR. Then I think one of the risks is that we don't continue to think of ourselves as innovators. And I think we really need to, to survive. The other thing that I think about a lot is that we have become the standard of care for so many disease processes. And we've actually absorbed a lot of the things that other people used to do and no longer know how to do, even the minor procedures. And that could actually create a really big void in the community for patients if we're not in communities taking care of patients. And so we're, we're like the go-to, we're necessary in these big systems or big hospitals, but when you get very far from them at all, then you've got communities that have absolutely no access to IR. And so what is that going to mean for our future? Because I think, first of all, for patients, it's a critical health disparity if you don't have access to an interventional radiologist, and we started talking about this idea of IR deserts, where you know we have these huge swaths of the country where there's no access to an interventional radiologist. Well, what does that mean if you come in with a GI bleed? You know, what does that mean if you've got you know even need a paracentesis at this point? Like you know, a lot of internists aren't even learning how to do paracentesis, and you go out in a community they don't know how. So a lot of the things we do are really now critical services. But if we aren't there to perform those services, then that creates a void that will ultimately be filled by somebody else. And, we, you know, we know that from other things, That somebody's always going to step in and take it on if it has to be done. So I think we really need to think about how do we, you know, make sure that we're serving the needs of all communities.
2: With respect to these uh, IR deserts, um, that's a, that's a great term. Where are they? <laughs> like, are they... <laughs> something where there's healthcare disparities in general, or are there specific places where IR is underrepresented?
0: Yeah. So Eric Friedberg and Rich Duzak and a group actually published last year, looking at the number of counties around the country that actually has an interventional radiologist. And it's just abysmal. I mean, it's, I think, only 10% of counties in the United States have an interventional radiologist. Now, those counties have a lot of them, but then, you know, you have these huge areas that don't. And we've, you know, just talking to people around the country, even if you just get out of, like, the concentrated urban centers and get out into suburban areas, in a lot of suburban areas, there isn't uh, really even high-level IR. So if you get to areas where, you know, in communities, of two hundred fifty thousand or less, it really steeply drops off. And these are great communities. They're communities that have they have surgeons, they have oncologists, they have internists, they have OBGYNs, mm-hmm. they have services being performed in those hospitals that would support the presence of an interventional radiologist to grow actually a really robust practice, but we're not getting those matches. We really have an opportunity there to to improve again, improve the care of patients, but also, you know, it does produce some risk for our specialty if we're not there to perform the services that we should be performing, because then others will.
2: Right. You know, to think about it in that way, it's not a way I've ever really thought about it, and I guess my centric view of having been in those urban centers, which probably a lot of us have been, it's a, it's a really good point, uh, I had a friend
0: who was an emergency physician who used to travel around um, to different communities and, and he would talk about being in in a hospital in rural West Virginia, you know, and having patients come in with a GI bleed and literally like there was nobody that could take care of them. The patients would just bleed wow. to death in the emergency department. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I mean, think- and, and that's like terrifying, isn't it? Because you think, yeah. you think, Oh, well, They're going to call the interventional radiologist. But if there's no place to even transfer the patient to, Mm. um, it's devastating.
3: Well, to take a shift and hopefully bring a little bit of brightness into the conversation, (laughs) uh, SIR 2020 is coming up and is right around the corner. Um, Is there anything specific that you're looking forward to or anything that uh, you have in store that might be a little bit different than uh, years past?
0: So I'm really, actually, I'm really excited that the meeting this year is in Seattle because that's where I did my training. It's my opportunity to kind of go go back home a little bit. So that's super fun for me. I think the meeting is shaping up to be great, just like every year, right? The, the annual meeting committee puts together an incredible meeting, but they're doing a lot more crowdsourced sessions. Just over the last few years, there's been this initiative to try to get people to submit ideas. Four sessions, and um, these have been more and more taken up. And so this year we're going to see a lot of that. So that'll be really exciting um, to kind of see how that pans out. We're having a really intense international presence with a lot of sessions that have been designed by our international partners. And I think those are always really Mm. interesting um, because the way that, especially when you go to, when you hear from places that have really high volumes, especially some of the Asian IR communities. Obviously are doing a ton of volume in disease states that we don't see as much of. And so they, they do a lot of innovative stuff that we have a, a great opportunity to learn from. So it's a great opportunity for that international exchange of ideas. and again, just sort of thinking differently about common problems. I'm really excited about where we are right now with stroke and our stroke initiative, and so I'm hopeful to to hear more about that at the annual meeting because we've got our new training guidelines that we just published. For stroke, and we're really making an imprint on the on the issues that, um, that surround our members that are that are taking care of stroke in the community.
2: Wrapping up, we're trying to, to start a, a kinked wire tradition. Uh, giving you limitless power over healthcare for for just one thing. So, if you had the ability to change just one thing in healthcare, what would it be?
0: So, I I actually think a lot about this. So I have an answer. Um, I I would give physicians the time and bandwidth to do what they do best, um, which is, you know, apply their cognitive skills to taking care of patients. We have done so much to pile more and more administrative tasks onto physicians and burden them with the things that really could be done by others. And so they have less and less time to actually think about patients, right? to apply the time to making the right diagnosis, to apply the time to thinking about what's the next best step in this patient's care. And there's so little of that one-to-one physician-patient interaction happening anymore because there's so much else going on. And and I don't know how we can ever improve the healthcare mm. system if we don't actually have physicians doing physician work like in front of patients. And I think it would actually save cost. If we used other staff to do the things that actually would support the physician work to do the work that only the physician can do, I think that would go a long way to improving the health of the
2: system. Well, I think I can hear the standing ovation of the listeners from here. That's, that's, I, mean, I <laughs> That would be a really good thing. Yeah.
1: You've been listening to The Kinked Wire, SIR's new podcast on interventional radiology. We thank Dr. Laura as SIR President, for joining us today, and thank you for listening. Our co-hosts are Dr. Warren Krakoff and Dr. Jamin Shaw. Our sound engineer is Dr. Jason Fisher. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have thoughts or ideas or anything else you'd like to tell us, we want to hear from you. Drop us a line at irq.sirweb.org.